In Nehemiah chapter 10, it says this in verse 28 and 29. It says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, verse 29, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinance and his statutes. And we've looked those last few weeks in chapters 8 and 9, the effects of God's word on his people. Ezra came out there that day when everyone had gathered in the, the, the square and came to hear the word of God, and he opened up the book of the law of God. And for many of those people, it was the first time in their lives they had heard from God's word, and it absolutely changed their lives. They heard the word of God, they worshipped God, they recognized their sin and they confessed it to God, they experienced His grace and forgiveness and remembered all that He had done for them in the past, and they began to obey His commandments. In verse uh, five of uh, five through eight, thirty-eight of chapter nine, we we didn't read all of that, but we see here as they're confessing their sins that the Levites, the teachers among them, they get up and they relate this prayer as a part of their confession. And I'll just give you a summary of it. They they acknowledged and praised God as their Creator. They they gave Him glory for everything that is made, the world and and everything in it. They see His power and glory in that. They they recognized his calling and his faithfulness to Abraham, that he had called out their father, that the, the, the father of that nation out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, to follow him. And he had promised him a land and promised him blessing. And God showed him, himself faithful to Abraham throughout his entire life. They spoke of God establishing His name, His reputation among the nations by delivering Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt. And they were in that land as slaves and had no hope of release. But then God sends the plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt and by miraculous signs and wonders delivers them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And even as they were crossing the Red Sea, they got across. God got them there safely. And as their enemies started to cross as well, the waters collapsed on their enemies and they perished. They saw God's law. They spoke of God's law that was given and provisions that were made for Israel in the wilderness. How that Moses had gone up on the mountain and received God's word, God's commands. God said, yes, I've delivered you and you are my people and this is what I require of you. And that was a goodness of God. That was a gift from God to give them what was required so that they could maintain that relationship with him. And he, gave, he made provisions for them, took care of them as they wandered in the wilderness. It, they saw, we saw Israel's rebellion and God's continued mercy, His love, His provision as they journeyed. It wasn't long after they'd come out of Egypt, they were already ready to go back. And they said, hey Aaron, here's some gold, make us a god. And they made that golden calf and worshipped it, yet God didn't destroy them. Now, what might you do if you were God? You deliver people out of bondage and they say, oh, thank you. Here's the law. And while their leaders up on the mountain, they make an idol and say, hey, this is what brought us out of Egypt. But God didn't wipe them out. He didn't destroy them. He showed them mercy. We see God's faithfulness to deliver them into the land that he had promised. 
Eventually, after those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, even through their disobedience, God still kept his promise and delivered them into that land. And then throughout the book of Judges, you'll remember, and really throughout the rest of Israel's history, we see this uh, cycle of rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance. And even in that, God's faithfulness and his mercy is seen over and over and over again. That no matter how far they'd gone, no matter how much they rebelled, they cried out for mercy and God gave it. He forgave them and restored them. And then at the end of that prayer, verses 32 to 37, they acknowledge their, their present state of sin and captivity. Yeah, they've been released from Babylon and, and they've been allowed to come back into their city and to rebuild the wall and to start their lives again. But they still have this king ruling over them. They recognized their own sin. And so they concluded their confession with this decision. Look at verse 38 of chapter 9. Verse 38, they said, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests, and seal it. And that's where we pick up today. That's what we read there in, in chapter 10. Verse 1 says, Those who place their seal on the document... Uh, Word, Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And it goes on for 27 verses, listing names of people who signed the document. And so what it is, is they have realized and remembered God's faithfulness and how he has proven his faithfulness to their ancestors, despite their sin, continued rebellion over and over again. God remained faithful. And they recognize that God has proven His faithfulness to them in allowing them to come back into their land and to rebuild the wall and to start their lives again in this city. And so as they recognize God's faithfulness both to their ancestors and to them, in response, they pledge their allegiance, their faithfulness, their obedience to Him. Now, what kind of uh, things did they pledge to do? What exactly did Israel pledge to do in response to God's faithfulness here? Uh, let me just note five things. One, uh, no intermarriage with the surrounding pagans. Verse 30 says, We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And we've talked about this before. It isn't uh, an issue of race. It was an issue of idolatry. The problem wasn't that they were of a different ethnicity. The problem was that they worshipped other gods. And so God says, you don't marry or you don't give your daughters out to marry uh, those people. And you don't take their daughters to marry your sons. Because when that happens, you're just going to end up worshipping their gods. And you'll leave. That was the problem. It was that they would leave their god. And you, know, you might say, well, that, that's awfully presumptuous. Why, why do you think they would do that? Well, just read Israel's history. It's exactly what they did. They didn't obey God. They, uh, they let their uh, children marry into the families of the nations around them. And they didn't worship Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. And they became idol worshipers. And plunged into sin and into destruction and rebellion against God. And so they make this covenant. The very first thing they name in this pledge to God is that this will go both ways. We're not going to allow our sons to marry their daughters, and we're not going to marry our daughters off to their sons. There's a separation that must happen there because they do not worship God. The second thing, they said they would observe the Sabbath. Verse 31, 
He says, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Now, this comes in two parts, this observance of the Sabbath. You've got the weekly thing that comes up every seventh day. Verse, the first half there, that if any of the people of the land brought stuff to sell, we wouldn't buy it from them because it's a holy day. They do this in obedience to the fourth commandment that God gave to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So whenever the people would come to, to sell, just like they did on every other day of the week, they would not receive them in and buy their stuff. Instead, they would turn them away and say, no, this is a holy day to our God and we're going to observe it, even if it affects our trade, our business. And then you've got that every seven years business. We're a little less familiar with that. He says there in the second half of the verse, we would uh, forego the seventh year's produce on the exact, and the exacting of every debt. See, every seven years, in obedience to what God had commanded back in Exodus 23, um, he said this, he said, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So what they had set up in this system was for, for six years they would plant their crops and they would gather in their harvest and enjoy the produce of the land for six years. And then that seventh year they didn't plant anything. And whatever grew, that's what they let the poor have. And whatever the poor didn't take, it's what the animals got to have. And so part of their uh, covenant here with God, their pledge of faithfulness to Him is that they're going to remember the Sabbath. Not just that uh, one every seven days day, but also to give up that year of produce, that opportunity to make a profit that seventh year uh, every seven years. The third thing is they provided for God's work and worship. And if you read verse 32 all the way through the rest of the chapter, verse 39, you see the different ways they did that. Verse 32 and 33, you see that they gave money. Verse 34, they brought wood for the offerings. In the following verses, they committed to give the first fruits of the ground and of the fruit trees and of every firstborn and of the herds and the flocks, the first fruits of dough and wine and oil and grain. The, the, the very first, the very best of everything they received, they said, we're going to give it to the work of God and to the worship that takes place in the temple, and we see that they gave a tithe, one-tenth of everything that they produced. So they, in so doing, by giving up this, what they had, this certain measure, they provided for God's work and for worship. The fourth thing, they, they offered to move themselves and their families. If you look there in verse 11, or chapter 11, Verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. The holy city and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now you think about this. They've, been, they've moved back into this land. They've built a wall. They've constructed this wall that's protecting the city. But nobody lives there. It's a ghost town. They've got the temple. This is the place where God has instructed them to worship. They've built a wall to protect it, but it's, it's hard to really run a city without people. And so what they do is they cast lots and they say, okay, one out of every ten of you move you and your family to, this, to Jerusalem to live, to populate the city. And so they did. And it says that those who came did so willingly. 
Now you think some of these had already established a home in other cities. Maybe they had a business, they were raising kids, they had their families, they had mom and dad and brother and sister and folks around. But some of them decided that for the sake of the city of God, and so that the worship of God would continue, that they would up and move their family to Jerusalem. That's devotion, that's commitment to make that kind of decision. And then fifth, they dedicated the wall with Worship. You see, the rest of chapter 11 and the first 26 verses of uh, chapter 12 is, again, lists of names of the people who made that move. They were just ordinary, everyday people willing to do something to serve God, willing to upend their lives and move in order to do God's work. But then in verse 27 through verse 30, we see how they dedicated the wall for worship or with worship. Verse 27 chapter says, uh, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. The sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the uh, Netophathites, from the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So they've all gathered here, and you can read the rest of the, the chapter of how this uh, celebration, this dedication worked itself out. But just notice a couple of things. One, they worshipped with music. They got their instruments together. They gathered people together. If you read, they actually they were more spiritual than us. They didn't have just one choir. They had two choirs. And uh, they didn't just stand in one place in front of the congregation and sing. They went on opposite sides of the city wall and just sang so the voices could be heard all throughout. And the scripture says that it was heard a great way off, the cities around Jerusalem and the neighboring uh, peoples. So they worshiped with music. But then notice, too, that they purified themselves and the wall to be set apart for God. The priests, the Levites, it wasn't anything really out of the ordinary for them to purify themselves. They had to do so in order to properly do the work of God. They had to set themselves apart and make sure they were pure before they could approach God with worship and service. But then they decided this new gate, these new gates, this new wall, we're going to dedicate it to. And they purified it and set it apart. This is God's wall. This is God's God's gate. These are God's gates. We are God's people. And they set themselves apart as part of this oath, part of this covenant. And so in all this, we see that Israel's remembrance of God's mercy and God's faithfulness moved them to pledge their allegiance, their faithfulness to Him. Now, we might read that and see all this, this history and facts about Israel and say, so what? What has that got to do with me? Well, if you just look at the history, probably not much at all. But you think about this. If they, recognizing the faithfulness and the mercy of God, were willing to make such drastic changes in their lives and to be so generous with their time and their money, their resources, their own very lives, how much more should we the church, the people of God, be moved to give ourselves our allegiance, our faithfulness to our God who has shown mercy and faithfulness to us. 
You see, we, we have it way better than they did. You see, we have the gospel, that good news that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. You see, we, you know your condition before you knew Christ, right? I hope you remember that. You were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, no life in you at all. Living after the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, Paul says, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's our state. Because we're sinners. We offend God by our sin, by our breaking His law. And we deserve judgment. We deserve hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. How did He do that? God became a man. He became one of us. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. Living that sinless life that pleased God, that life that we could never live, doing it in our behalf, as our substitute. And not deserving to die, laid down his own life willingly. He laid down his life to pay the penalty for sin, yours and mine. He laid his life down. He was nailed to a cross, had the crown of thorns beaten into his brow. He was mocked and spit upon, stripped naked, and hoisted up in the, in the air for everyone to look at and make fun of as he bled and died. And in so doing, God takes the sin, the unrighteousness, the filth that is of us, and places it on Jesus when he's on the cross. And Jesus, in his death, makes payment for our sin. So where we deserve God's wrath, we deserve judgment, we deserve death, Jesus, who doesn't deserve it, takes it on himself for us. And after those three hours of darkness on the cross, that, that punishment, that wrath of God that he experienced for all who would believe in him, he cries out with a loud voice and says what? It is finished. The work is done. The debt is paid. Sin is covered for all who will believe in him. Well, yeah, well, how can we believe that? Well, because he said, I'm going to die and then on the third day I'm going to come back. And you know what he did? He died, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And in rising, he proved that he was the Son of God. He proved that he did make payment for sins. He proves that he has the power to give forgiveness and life to everyone who will put their trust in him. God has proven himself faithful, and he has proven himself merciful. And if the faithfulness and the mercy of God moved Israel to make these adjustments, these changes in their lives, to pledge their allegiance to him, how much more should we who have been bought by the blood of the Son of God pledge ourselves, give ourselves, our allegiance, our faithfulness to him all our days? What are some ways that we can do that? What can we learn from what Israel did? One, remain separate from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? 
Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? There are certain relationships that Christians cannot maintain. Specifically, the Apostle Paul makes the application to marriage. And we talked about this last week. Are Christians allowed just to marry anybody? No. Christians, you marry Christians. You raise your children to marry Christians. Why? Because if they don't, they'll end up just following the gods of the world. Just like Israel did. It's got nothing to do with race or ethnicity or anything like that. It's who do they worship. That's what matters. He said in the next verse in 2 Corinthians, he said, Therefore, he quotes God's command to Israel, to the church here, he says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Now that's not, that's not really what's popular to preach right now. Be separate from the world. That sounds like the old fundamentalists from the 60s. They might have taken it a little too far in some areas, but the message is still the same. There is a separation that must take place between God's people and the world. Now listen, we go out into the world and we love the world. We are kind to the world. We bless the world in every way that we can because we want to preach the gospel to them. But there are some things that we can't take part in. Y'all, it's June. You got a TV. You know what's being celebrated left and right and up and down in every direction. We love the world, the people in it. We want to bless them and be kind, but we cannot participate in the in affirming sin. Come out from among them and be separate. It will cost you at some point. But after all the faithfulness and the mercy that God has shown... How could we not? So one, remain separate from the world. Two, gather for worship and deal generously with your Christian family. Now, they're, they're observing the Sabbath here, and I know that some people disagree on this, but I'll just tell you the best way I understand Scripture. There is no Sabbath equivalent in the New Testament for the church. We love the Ten Commandments, and uh, that's great, but there's only nine that are reinforced in the New Testament. And uh, the one that's not is Sabbath. But we do see that the Christians still gathered. In fact, God commanded that they gather. He says, do not forsake the gathering, the assembling of yourselves together. And the practice that the church took up in the New Testament, because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, the first day of the week became that day that they got together for worship. And so we have that command, and it's sort of this, the basic, baseline Christian command, get together with the church on Sundays. I mean, I don't really see how a person can progress much further in their Christian life if you're unwilling to gather with the church on the normal day that they get together to worship. So gather for worship, deal generously with your Christian family. Now, you know, they, they would leave their land every seventh year, and then on every 49 years, they forgave all their debts. Now, they had a command to forgive debts on every 49 years. Can you imagine the guy being the guy given a loan on the 48th year? 
What kind of terms do you want to have on this? Do you think you can pay it off in 12 months? Well, I was kind of hoping for a 72-month, you know. That would really, <laughs> that tug on a guy, wouldn't it? To be loaning money in the 48th year, knowing you've got to forgive it in the 49th, but you know what? They did it anyway. Why? Because they loved and obeyed God. And that was more valuable than their money. Now again, we don't have a New Testament equivalent of the year of Jubilee, but we ought to deal generously with our Christian brothers and sisters. Money is not the most important thing here. Now be wise. You know, don't enable people to do stupid stuff. But deal generously with one another as believers. Third, give cheerfully to the church and to missions. Wow, I'm mentioning money in two points today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now again, there's no command to tithe in the New Testament for the church. But I think it's a good place to start. You see, they had no direct access to God individually. You know, they were dependent on going to the temple, and they had to have the priests who would take their sacrifices and offer it for them. And they had the high priest that would go behind the curtain into the presence of God on their behalf. They themselves had no direct access to God. And they committed... To bring their tenth, one-tenth of what they produced. We have received unlimited access to God personally. He has made us, as he says, kings and priests. We have access to God the Father anytime, anywhere. You don't even have to get on your knees. You don't even have to close your eyes. You can speak to the God of heaven anytime you please if you belong to Him. He's poured out His grace on us through Jesus. He's given us His Holy Spirit. So how much more cheerfully generous ought we to be than they? So don't just give Him a tenth. Give Him all of it. All of your money, all of your stuff belongs to God. And whatever you do with it, do it with it in such a way that it brings Him honor and glory. But you have to start somewhere. This is just practical, okay? I don't have a Bible verse to tell you to give 10% of your money to the church. But I praise God for those of you in this church who have cheerfully and generously given faithfully for years. The work that happens here would not continue if you were not faithfully generous. You give to the church, you give to missions. Today, even today, you're going to give to the Pilot Mountain Outreach Center to help them pay for that air conditioning unit. I praise God for that. Parents and grandparents, you have a responsibility to instill this in your children. Mine did. I remember even as a kid, I got a $5 allowance. I can't remember if it was every two weeks or a week or month. It varied time to time, depending on how things were. But I remember getting a $5 allowance, and you know how it came? It came with four $1 bills and four quarters. 
Why? Because 50 cents of that $5 was going in the offering plate when we got to church. I wasn't given an option. It's just how it happened. My parents said, here's your allowance. By the way, these two are going in the plate. You take that to Sunday school with you. And even not realizing what I was doing at the time, they were training me to take a portion of what God blesses me with and to give it to his work because he's that important. And so you've got a responsibility to do that with your own children and your own grandchildren. If you personally don't have any consistent pattern for giving, I encourage you prayerfully and submissively ask the Lord where he wants you to start. And so whether that's 5%, 10%, 20% or more of your income, be obedient to him and start right away. Make a plan this week. Lord, how do you want me to give? To the regular offering of the church and then to missions and anything else beyond that. That's between you and the Lord. Fourth thing, offer yourself up to God's use. Offer yourself Romans 12, 1, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, they're bringing sheep and oxen, goats and birds and all kinds of animals to offer as sacrifices to God. They kill them. We come to the New Testament and Jesus has, has made that final sacrifice. We belong to God. Our sins are paid for. And then he sends his apostles to preach. And, the, and Paul says, give yourself, your own body, a living sacrifice. Oh, it's still got to be holy. It's still got to be acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. Offer your own body, a living sacrifice to God. You think about these people, they up and moved their families in order to inhabit Jerusalem and carry on the work of God. And it might just be that God calls some families in our congregation to leave. I want to clue you in on a little secret here. My number one goal as a pastor is not to fill every seat in this place. If God chooses to do it, I praise Him for it. But as he does it, my expectation is that some of you at some point are going to leave. Not because you're mad or angry or because you don't like the preacher, but because God has called you to go do a work somewhere else where you're needed. You ever think about church that way? That there's a possibility you might not be here forever? And that God has a work for you to do somewhere else? You think about the Great Commission. He calls us to make disciples, but what's the very first word of that verse? Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Romans 10, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, somebody to tell them? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Church, have you ever considered it a part of your responsibility to be sending people from your congregation? Oh, we love bringing people in. We love it when we take new people into our church. We welcome them. We love them. We serve them. We want to make them a part of our family here. Praise God for it. But we also have a responsibility to send. To commission people to leave this place and go serve God somewhere else. 
It'll hurt every time. You'll miss them. You'll love them. For some reason, God always takes your best. The ones you really want to hang on to. But that's our responsibility. To either be going or sending. Which are you going to do? Fifth. This is pretty close to that one. He says, I want to say dedicate all you have to God's service and worship. If they came and they purified themselves. They, they dedicated their wall. They worshiped God with song. And friends, everything we have in ourselves and everything we own, all our stuff, just dedicated to God's use. Everything you do in your life is an opportunity for worship. Doesn't mean you have to sing when you're working in the garden. For some people, they say that helps the plants grow. For some of you, it might kill the plants. I don't know. But everything you do, do it as an act of worship to your God. And be purifying yourself. Searching your own heart, asking the Spirit to search your heart and to show you those things that you need to be rid of. Purify yourself, and not just purify and consecrate yourself for God's service, but all your stuff too. If God blesses you with material things, use it for His glory. If He gives you a big house, use it to take care of people. If He gives you a nice car, use it to serve others. Everything you have is for God. And if you need motivation to live a life of such high commitment to God, some of this stuff sounds crazy to some of you, I'm sure. Yeah, that's nice. I hope somebody in here does that. Think, think of yourself. If you need motivation to live a life of such high commitment to God, simply remember His mercy and faithfulness. If who God is doesn't make you want to live for Him, then you really don't know Him. If His mercy and His faithfulness don't move you to offer your life to Him, then you've either never experienced it or you've just forgotten. And either way, you need to find yourself on your knees saying, God, remind me again. Take me back to that place so I could remember your mercy and your faithfulness. Give me the desire to serve you. When we really stop to remember God's mercy, His faithfulness toward us, allegiance to Him, faithfulness to Him really isn't that big of a, th a thing. It's just our natural response to His goodness.